We're going to be looking at the whole chapter of Hebrews 10 tonight. That's 39 verses. And so we're going to um, be here for the next four hours to do that. No, I'm, I'm teasing. We're going, to, we're going to look at this in a more macro sense. We're not going to try to pull apart every word, every clause. This book is repetitive. The book of Hebrews is very repetitive, and uh, we have been laboring away at, at this book for quite some time. And so chapter 10 uh, is the final installment in the argument, the theological argument of the book, and it really changes directions beginning in chapter 11. So we're going to, with all the arguments we're going to hear tonight in chapter 10, we have heard more than one time already as we've been going through this book. So as we go through it together, we're going to take more of that macro view. We're going to, you know, take the plane up to a little higher elevation and we're going to be able to to, uh, examine all of chapter 10 together. And so tonight as we do that, we're going to see three life-changing attitudes. Three life-changing attitudes that we must adopt so that we will press on to maturity in the Christian life. You know, there are no shortage of starters in the Christian life. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor that I have seen someone who goes up like a rocket and down like a stone. They start out and apparently hot for Jesus Christ. It looks like they are on fire. It looks like they have been captivated by Christ. And then... Over a period of time, sometimes longer than in other cases, the fire begins to burn more slowly, not so much intensity or heat to it. Sometimes their church attendance just begins to become more and more uh, sporadic. They just become preoccupied, it seems, with other things in life. and, And so they're just not burning for Christ like they once did. Others totally drop out. I mean, they don't go to church anymore at all anywhere. They're not involved in the Christian life at all. If they were to leave their Bible somewhere, I can imagine it would be months before they'd even know it. What do we make of such things? It's difficult to try to try to figure out what's going on in those circumstances when people who profess Jesus Christ become virtually indistinguishable from the world. You know, it's not how we begin, it's how we finish. That's really what it's all about. It doesn't matter when we begin as much as how we finish. Beloved, it's all about finishing the race. It's all about breaking the tape on two feet and not crawling across the finish line out of breath. And so that's really the message for us tonight out of chapter 10 of Hebrews. There are three life-changing attitudes that the author here uh, to the Hebrews is going to to press upon us as he presses upon this small Jewish Christian congregation located somewhere, I believe, in Palestine towards the end of the first century, sometime just before the destruction of the temple around A.D. 70. You can see in your handout that I've given you the I've given you the structure more completely than I normally do. And I've done that to hopefully not confuse you, but perhaps give you a a better roadmap of where we're going here. So you can see the life-changing attitudes. First is complete surrender. Secondly is aggressive stimulation. Third is patient suffering. So those are the life-changing attitudes that really, I believe, come out of this text. Complete surrender, aggressive stimulation, and patient patient. Suffering, But there's a lot underneath those categories. And so let's look together now, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews 10. I'm not going to read the whole chapter through and then turn around and kind of pull it apart. So we're going to read it as we go. We're going to read it section by section and kind of draw out the big theme of what he's talking about. As I said, for the last nine chapters, he has been hammering away on the sufficiency and superiority of Jesus Christ to that which has gone before in the Old Covenant. All that pointed forward pointed to Christ. Christ has arrived. It's all been fulfilled in him. And so it's time to lay aside the old things. No holding back. You can't can't keep one foot on the gunwale of the boat and one foot on the dock. It's Jesus Christ totally all the way Or is not Jesus Christ at all? 
And so he has been hammering away at that very theme, showing how the Levitical priesthood and its sacrificial system, it has to go. Showing how that, that, that uh, Jesus Christ fulfills all that has come before. And he's going to finish here in verses 1 through 18 with his doctrinal appeal. That's the heavenly doc, or heavily, finishes the heavily doctrinal section of this book, and then he's going to begin to, to draw on that and try to bring this letter of appeal to a conclusion. Now, you remember, I've probably said this many times, but I'll say it again tonight. This small congregation is under pressure. They are under tremendous pressure from most likely their countrymen, their fellow countrymen, their neighbors, their friends, maybe even family members, because they have been pushed out of the synagogue by their allegiance to Christ by this date. There is an animosity, there is a rift now between the Jewish community and the, and the fledgling Christian community. And so they have been pushed out from all that they have known and the pressure and the persecution, as we'll see a little bit later, has come upon them because of this. And so there's a tendency to want to keep their allegiance with Christ, yes, but pull back some of the old stuff with them to avoid the heat, to make themselves more acceptable to their culture, to make themselves uh, less confrontational around the dinner table with their friends and family members. And that relative to us, that relates to us, right? We can identify with that kind of pressure. So even though this thing was written a long, long time ago, it speaks directly to us today. So how is he going to do this? How is he going to finish his case, his argument here, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and superior to all that has gone before? Well, he's going to do it here in verses 1 through 10 first by pointing out to them, again, the inadequacies of animal sacrifices, so it begins by pointing out the inadequacies of the animal sacrifices, and he does that in three ways. You can see it on your handout. The animal sacrifices are inadequate for three reasons. Number one, they're a continual. Number two, they're a reminder of sin. Number three, they're non-voluntary. So let's unpack that a little bit. First, they are continual, verses 1 and 2. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they continually, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, once having been cleansed, would no longer have conscious of, have had consciousness of sins. What he's saying here is that the, that the basic purpose and intent of, of sacrifice is not fulfilled completely in the animal sacrifices. They don't do the job. They don't provide the, the necessary expiation of sin, the necessary removal of sin. And the reason that he knows that is because of the fact that they have to be offered over and over and over again. If they really did the job, if they really were to make a man right with God on any kind of a permanent basis, then you wouldn't have to do it again. That's his point. The very fact that you have to do it over and over, year after year, tells you that the sacrifice itself is not sufficient to make you fully right before God. The Day of Atonement and the sacrifices that are associated with it were the same. Every year it was the exact same thing again. The same scapegoat had to come. They had the same ritual, the same shedding of the blood, the same sending out scapegoat off into the wilderness. The Day of Atonement happens over and over and over again. No variation, no relief, but a continual offering, a continual sacrifice. None of them is ever complete or final. They are just one in a series, an endless series. It never terminates. Now, I'm not trying to imply or say by this that there was not a measure of forgiveness received under the system. There was. There was forgiveness available to them under the, under the system, but it was not a permanent forgiveness. And the reason we know it was not permanent is the very reason he points out here in this rhetorical question he asks in verse 2. If it was permanent, then you wouldn't have to keep doing it, right? The fact that you have to keep doing it tells you that there's got to be something else. It's an endless Series. There's no assurance of a permanent forgiveness. All it did was bring them up to date, if you will. 
They would fall behind on the ledger account. They would come up to date and the Day of Atonement, and then they would fall behind again for another year, and then back into the Day of Atonement to bring their account current again. That's inadequate, because it's that over and over and endless repetition. How different it is for us, right? I mean, when we sin, there is a consciousness of our failures, there not? We know that we are guilty. We know that, that we have offended God and we can come to God and confess our sin and, and ask His forgiveness and we know that He has forgiven us. Isn't that right? That there is not this continual uh, sacrifice we have to offer. You know, when you sinned this last week, you didn't come to the, you know, the church and, and dragging a goat behind you. Okay? You didn't have to make a sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrifice has been offered once for all that has removed your sin. The old system was inadequate because it was continual. Jesus himself said in First uh, John 1, 9, right? If, if, we are sin, uh, if we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of his work on the cross. So, the fact that they pointed out the inadequacies of the animal sacrifices, their continual nature. Secondly, the animal sacrifices provide, they're inadequate because they provide a reminder of sin. Now, you've got to kind of think with this one a little bit. What he's doing for, this, uh, for the readers here is he's kind of flipping their logic on them. They're, they're, the point he's trying to make is that the very common means that is given by God by which they can receive pardon is the very thing that points out their guilt. I mean, it, did not the, the ritual of the Day of Atonement uh, provide for an annual removal of their sin? Answer, yes, it did. And was it not the means by which uh, God had ordained the forgiveness of their forefathers? Yes, it was. So it is absolutely what God had given, but, but built into it was a reminder. Every year when you come back again and you take that goat and you slice its throat, slash its throat and you pour out its blood, you are reminded again that God is holy and you are not and that an innocent victim had to die on your behalf. So there is this continual reminder of guilt. The Day of Atonement of, of, you know, of all the holidays of the Jewish year, it was a, a holiday or, a, or a, a, a feast and a festival that, that brought reminder of their guilt. It was not a happy time. It was not like the others in which it was a festive day. It was a day of, of solemnity. It was a day when, when people would be reminded of the fact that they were guilty. So they're inadequate because they're continual. They're inadequate because they're a reminder of sin. That's what 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 say, right? For in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And that leads us to the third inadequacy that he points out here, and that's in verses 5 through 10. And the inadequacy is that they're non-voluntary. So let me read this and see if we can... Uh, can follow his train of thought here. He says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The force of the argument here is he's drawing back to Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, and in particular verses 6 through 8, God is demanding of his people or telling his people, what I want is not sacrifice but obedience. That has always been God's heart, right? He doesn't really, he doesn't want just the externals. He doesn't want you to just go through the motions. Just bringing a lamb or a goat or an oxen or whatever it is and, or a bird and, you know, ringing off its head, that is not sufficient. What he wants is the inside of you. He wants your heart. He wants your obedience. 
There are many, many places in the scripture where you can go where God says, I'm sick and tired of your offerings, of your sacrifices. It doesn't do you any good. What I want is you. I want your heart. I want your obedience. And what Jesus is, or what the writer is saying, applying these words to Jesus is, is the fact that Jesus has come to do God's will. He has come obediently. He has come voluntarily. I mean, the reason God doesn't take lasting, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons, at least pointed here, that God doesn't take a lasting pleasure in an animal sacrifice is because no animal ever was sacrificed voluntarily. I mean, just think about that. Right? They were taken against their will. They were brought into the temple area and they were tied to the horns of the altar. Why? Why did they have to tie them there? It's simple, because once the animal sensed death and the smell of death, its natural uh, tendency would be to flee, to run. And so they would bind it there to the horns of the altar. And they would slaughter this poor, innocent animal, the guilty for, or the innocent rather, for the guilty. And so the animal itself hasn't, hasn't given obedience. It's not an obedience issue. When Jesus came, and again, look at those verses. He's come into the world, he says, I have, I have come to do your will, verse 7. Jesus came into the world. He, the incarnation was, was an act of obedience from the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, right? That whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Philippians 2, the great passage on the kenosis, on the, on the humbling of Jesus Christ. It was a voluntary setting aside. That he left the throne room of glory. No one had to tie him to the cross. He went to the cross voluntarily and he did it to save us from our sin. Matthew 26 and verse 39, Jesus said, Not my will, but, your, but thine. Do you remember where he said that? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, God, if there could be any other way, if there could be any other way, what I'm about to do is terrifying beyond imagination. If there is any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, obediently. And in that, God finds pleasure. Jesus, beloved, went to the cross in the place of his people. He took your place on that cross and he did it voluntarily. He was not like the sheep that had to be lashed to the horns of the altar. So the animal sacrifices, inadequate because they're continual, inadequate because they remind people of their sin and their guilt, and they're inadequate because they are not voluntary. He turns the corner here in verses 11 through 18 and he says, now there is efficacy. There is, there is uh, the sacrifice of Christ works for because uh, or is demonstrated by two observations here in verses 11 through 18. Two observations. Number one, Christ sat down. Number two, the new covenant itself promised an end to the remembrance of sin. So let's kind of follow that through. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind. I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was not a repetitive sacrifice, right? Verse 11, when he finished, he sat down. You know, the, uh, the tabernacle, and we've said this before, the tabernacle contained all kinds of, of elaborate furnishings, didn't it? 
God gave the pattern to Moses for the tabernacle and all that had to be done. And he says to him, do it exactly the way I tell you, Moses. But as you examine the interior of the, of the furnishings of the tabernacle, the one thing that is conspicuously absent in terms of furniture is what? It's a chair. There were no chairs in the presence of God. Because the priest continually had to perform his responsibilities and duties. He never sat down. He was always busy. But for Jesus Christ, it was just the opposite. He gave his sacrifice and then did what? He sat down. He's done. When you sit down, you're done. You rest. It's over. And it's not just that he sat down. But again, notice where he sat down. Verse 12. He sat down at the right hand of God. The place of exaltation and majesty. God had exalted him to his right hand. Because the, the what Christ had done raises him above all of creation. And God says that you will sit there in verse 13 until your enemies are made a footstool for your feet, until the kingdom that I have promised you is delivered to you. Christ sat down. We know his sacrifice worked. It was efficacious because he sat down. That's the point he's making. Beyond that, we know his sacrifice was efficacious Because the new covenant itself, which Christ brought in his own blood, promised that there would be no more remembrance of sins. Do you see that? Verse 17. In their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. The new covenant was not just another legal code. It wasn't a substitution of one set of law for a new set of law. One set of ceremonies for a new set of ceremonies. It was a fundamentally different way of God dealing with his people. And so there, under that, built into that new covenant, is the idea that, that sin will, God will no longer remember their sin. It will be totally dealt with and put away. I mean, the logic here really, I think, is compelling. If the, if, if the terms of the new covenant, as Jeremiah prophesied to them, is that your sin and your lawless deeds will be remembered no more, that the law will no longer reside externally on tablets of stone, but will now reside within your heart, it's clearly superior, and he's pointed that out for us in prior chapters, then why in the world would you ever go back? That's his point. Why in the world would you ever go back? If the new covenant has come, the old covenant has what? Gone. And so if it's gone, why would you try to go back and revive it? Why in the world would you try to keep one foot on the dock and the other in the boat, right? That's what he's saying to them. No turning back. No holding back. He's calling on their complete surrender. He's he's saying that that, that what they had is no more. What they have is so infinitely better. He's calling on them to cling to that which is new. To surrender the old way of life. Everything about their old way has to change. The old is out. The new is in. And that may cause them to have to break family traditions, even possibly relationships. Not that they would leave their family, but their family may leave them. The way they operated in life, the way they viewed the world, must change, necessarily must change. Well, Jesus makes the same demands on us, right? When we come to Jesus Christ by faith, we embrace Him as our Lord and Savior. Our worldview must change. The spring, uh, the spring semester of fit. This is my commercial. In the spring semester of fit, we are going to offer a course called Christian Developing a Christian Worldview. Because, beloved, our view of the world has to change. We saw the world one way. Before Christ. After Christ, we have to see it differently. 
And that means that it, it impacts every single area of our lives, the way we view reality. It impacts what we view as right and wrong. It changes our definitions of success and failure, authority and submission. It affects how we view things like human sexuality, love, politics, personal possessions, work, school, physical fitness, on and on and on. Everything changes. Everything must change. We can't have Christ and still drag along the old baggage with us. They couldn't do it. We can't do it either. No holding back. No holding back. Everything has to be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So the first life-changing attitude that we must adopt is complete surrender. Complete surrender. Secondly, aggressive stimulation. We must aggressively stimulate new behavior. We must completely surrender the old behavior. We must aggressively stimulate the new behavior. That's what he's going to go on and say to them, in light of the truth of the reality of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, things must change. And so he's going to exhort them here in verses 19 through 31 towards three new behaviors in their lives. Three new behaviors. I've got them listed for you here. First, they must draw near in faith. Secondly, they must hold fast the hope. And third, they must stimulate one another. And then he reinforces it with a warning for those who, who don't. So let's kind of unpack it a little bit here quickly. Verses 19 through 22. Drawing near in faith. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying to him is really rather simple. He's saying rather than wavering back and forth, whether than being, you know, double-minded, you know, thinking in two directions, whether look, rather than look this way and look that way, that they need to look to Jesus Christ with a, a full assurance of the finished work of Christ on their behalf. It's really that simple. That they must fully look to Jesus Christ. That must be what characterizes their approach to God. There can be no second thoughts in the back of their mind that somehow maybe Jesus is not quite enough. That maybe I still need something from the old to supplement the new. No, they need to draw near in faith. They must recognize that faith in the work of Christ is their, the basis of their approach to God. They are to draw near with a sincere heart, not a divided heart, in a full assurance of faith, their hearts having been sprinkled clean by Christ. And then they are hold fast the hope, it says, verse 23, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is the hope of a believer? What is our hope? Is it not that we have been made right before God by our faith union with Jesus Christ and that when we die, we will spend eternity in his presence? Isn't that our hope? And so what he's saying here is that hope is what we have to cling to. It is our only deliverance from sin in Christ and it is the promise of heaven. That is what we anchor ourselves to. And it is only by and through Jesus Christ that we have that hope. John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says that I go to prepare a place for you, right? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be always. What's he talking about? Jesus was telling his troubled disciples and, and through them us that he is gone to prepare a place in glory for us. That is our hope. The blessed hope of the return of Christ to take us to be with him. And that hope we have to hang on to, verse 23. The confession of that hope. We have to hang on to it without wavering, he says. Again, the idea of a, of a rock-solid commitment. It's that very hope that the Apostle Paul over in 1 Thessalonians 4 uses verses 13 to 18 to steady the faith of the, of the church at Thessalonica who is grieving over the loss of members within the church thinking that somehow they've missed out on their union with God in the, in the, uh, in the rapture, the resurrection of the church. So hanging on to that confession of hope that, that Christ is all we have. Hang fast, he says. Beyond that, he says, stimulate one another, right? Verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As Christians, he's exhorting them here to to give proper attention to the needs of the fellowship. To associate themselves with the body of Christ in its local manifestation. Not to try to avoid persecution by avoiding public meetings. To try to go through life incognito, right? I'm a Christian, but you would never know it. You know, I'm a Christian on the inside, but on the outside, I look just like everybody else. That way, nobody will throw rocks at me. I mean, it can manifest itself for us, right? We, uh, our Christian testimony remains so veiled and so far in the back of our throat, it never manages to find its way to the tip of our tongue. And he's saying that we must stimulate one another to avoid this kind of secrecy. And notice he says, verse 24, it's to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Love and good deeds. These are the fruit of the Spirit, right? The manifestation of the work of the Spirit of God within us. These are the things that we should be shining out and through our lives. And so we are to, to work at stimulating one another. And that word stimulate is a strong word. You could translate it provoke, exasperate, irritate, stir up. Think of it this way, um, a pebble in your shoe. How's that? All right, what's it feel like to have a pebble in your shoe? It is irritating. That's what it feels like. It is provoking, right? It is even exasperating. You can't ignore it. And so what he's saying here is that that is what they are to do one for another, and that is what we are to do one for another. We are to help each other live like Christians because there is a tendency to hide your light underneath what? A bushel basket. It's exactly right. And so we are to stimulate one another to the outward expression of our Christian faith here spoken of as love and good deeds. We are to openly demonstrate the changed life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Not forsaking, verse 25, our own assembling together, right? Again, there's a historical context and background underneath that. The reason some of these people were avoiding the public assembly of the church is because they did not want their neighbors to see them going. They did not want their parents to see them going. They didn't want their friends or their employers or whatever to see them associating with this hated sect, the way. So they were avoiding it. That's still true in some countries. There is still tremendous persecution and pressure in some parts of the world. And so there is that pressure to avoid the assembling together in order to try to avoid the persecution. But my goodness, in this country, in this country, what excuse would we have? 
Now, this is clearly preaching to the choir because you're all sitting here. But the attendance in the public worship of the church is horrible. It's just horrible. New Testament Christians would be absolutely floored. It would be unintelligible to them to... If they were to come on a Sunday morning and observe the fact of the up and down variation of attendance among the public services of the people of God. Do you know, beloved, sometimes attendance on Sunday morning fluctuates by a hundred people? There's only a church of 400. How can it fluctuate so much? What possibly could be so important? That that kinds of numbers would come one week and not come the next. It's baffling. It's baffling to me, and it would be more baffling to a Christian of the first century, particularly in a place where there is no persecution. There is no danger. There is no fear. There are many other entertainment options available. And I suspect that that, unfortunately, is part of the problem. So not forsaking, he says, our own assembling of ourselves together. Not backs, or, or pulling back from the truth in an attempt to avoid danger. You know, it says here, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you notice that? There's probably... Uh, there's probably a double meaning in that. This, uh, this epistle was written sometime shortly before A.D. 70, maybe as late as A.D. 68. Now, what happened in A.D. 70? You remember? The destruction of Jerusalem, right, the temple? The Roman armies began in Galilee and worked their way south over a period of a couple of years. As you see the day drawing near, I don't think it's much of a stretch for him to be telling them, listen, you're, you're wise enough to look out on the horizon and see the destruction that's coming, the temporal destruction. So I think it has that meaning for them, but it goes beyond that. When it talks about the day drawing near, typically in the New Testament, what that's talking about is the return of Christ. And so that's how it can move to our day. We don't know when Christ is returning, do we? But we do know the scripture tells us that things are going to go from bad to worse. Right? The relative peace and prosperity and security of the church in the West will not last forever. We don't know how long it will last. It may last through our whole lifetime. It may not. But there will come a day, beloved, if the, if the scripture makes it clear, when the pressure will come. And if we as evangelical Christians in America can't get our act together in a time of no pressure, what in the world are we going to do when the heat is really turned up? Huh? Not forsaking ourselves, the assembly together. And he gives them a fearful warning, by the way, verses 26 through 31. This is not just something he's saying you ought to do. Look at this warning. This is one of them. I think this is one of the most terrifying warnings of the New Testament. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What is the sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth? What is he talking about? What is the sin? The sin is the pulling back from Christ. That's the sin. After you have come to the full knowledge and understanding that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, to pull back from that truth invokes this most fearsome judgment. But with a, with a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, a fury of, of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment, he says, do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, he says. This is a very strong warning. To consider unclean or, or common, another translation, the, the blood of Christ, is to, is to say that essentially the blood of Jesus Christ has no more value than any other man. It is to devalue the blood of Jesus Christ and the pardon that it brings and to consider it on par with other men. To uh, insult the spirit of grace, verse 29. What he's talking about here is, is, is to reject the work of the spirit. It is the Spirit's role, it's His unique role to draw men to Christ. Is that right? It's to testify to the reality of Jesus Christ. It's to present the, the, the work of Jesus Christ, His completed and finished work on Calvary's cross. And so you insult Him when you ignore that work. When you pull back from that testimony. And to do these things, to consider Jesus Common, that is, one man among many. Let me just make it real specific. To consider Christ to be one way to God among many would be to make Him common. You would insult the Spirit of God when you reject and refuse His witness to who Jesus Christ is. And beloved, the witness comes most clearly through His Word. These are wicked, wicked sins. And those who commit these sins, he says, can expect nothing but terrifying judgment. And notice in verse 30, he said, the Lord will judge his people. Do you see that? Well, I think what he's communicating here is that there's no, you can't escape it by hiding out in the church. By pretending that you believe, by, by sort of hanging around on the fringe. As if somehow uh, God will miss that. You know, you'll kind of sneak in the gate with the crowd. The Lord will judge his people. He will look deep down into the hearts of each and every one. And he will know. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into his hands. I was thinking about this verse off and on this week as I had a little bit of spare time. I don't know that this is absolutely certain in this area, but it certainly occurred to me. And that is there are a number of evangelicals today, claim to be evangelicals, many of whom appear in public settings, and uh, particularly Larry King and some of those talk shows. And Larry King is pretty good about pushing them with the question of, is Jesus Christ the only way? And it sickens me, it sickens me honestly, to see the number of big name evangelicals who equivocate on that question. Who are unwilling to make a clear declaration that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. They'll say to him, I, I, I'm, I want to believe that, I think that's true. And then Larry King will turn to him and he'll say, well, does that mean that all reject Christ? All the Hindus of the world, all the Muslims of the world, all the followers of the Buddhists of the world are lost? And you can just see it come across their face. They're unwilling to answer the question. Again, I don't be careful how, where I go with this and how I would apply this. God alone knows what's going on inside. But I'll tell you what, I think it's a pretty fearful thing to deny and make common the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to even admit the possibility that there is salvation in any other name. For the Scripture clearly says there is not. And to refuse the witness of the Word of God is to insult the Spirit of grace. It's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to refuse to stand up for Christ. How do we stimulate one another? Let's just kind of talk about that. We're to stimulate one another, it says, to love and good deeds. How do we go about doing that? Notice that it says that the, uh, the stimulation is to occur in the assembly, in the gathering of the people. 
Now, they didn't gather on Sunday morning like we do. Okay, that's, that, that doesn't occur for several centuries following. Because of one basic reason. Christianity was illegal. Okay? And so they gathered in the evenings in people's homes. So then, so make sure when you understand the gathering, we don't layer onto it our 21st century conception. But it is to occur in the gathering of the people of God. You know, Christianity, there are no lone rangers, right? In Christianity, I, I, I didn't write down where I got this quote. I had pulled it from something else. But it says, uh, Discipleship either kills secrecy or secrecy kills discipleship. I kind of like that. Discipleship will either kill one's secrecy, meaning his, his uh, inability and unwillingness to, to public, make public his commitment to Christ, or his unwillingness and inability to make public his commitment to Christ will ultimately kill his discipleship or his commitment to Christ. You've all, uh, probably many of you have been to, a, to the beach or to a, you know, to a youth camp or somewhere, and there's a campfire, and it's, you know, the campfire talk and the coals are glowing, right? You know where I'm going with this. And they reach in and say, you know, Christians are like coals in a fire, right? We're all together and we're burning hot. And they'll take one coal out and they'll pull it away from the edge of the fire for a while. And what happens to it? It goes out, doesn't it? Now we say, oh, that's just corny. That's for kids. <laughs> but boy, what a profound illustration. What a profound illustration. It really is. It is in the assembly together that we irritate, provoke, stimulate one another like a pebble in a shoe to love and good deeds. Now, you can be, uh, you can be irritating for irritating sake, and that doesn't count. Okay, so I want anybody to come up to afterwards and, and try to justify their you know, ill disposition and say that the Bible says it's okay. That's not the point. <laughs> That's right. I, my spiritual gift is irritation, you know. So he's not saying that. But he's saying that we need to be working at stimulating one another. I wrote down four, four ways to do that. One is to, um, is to point to the example of other Christians. And we don't have time to turn to these passages. But just think with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Well, yeah, we've got to turn there because I can't quote it. So we've got to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is one way to stimulate the love and good deeds. Paul is writing the church at Corinth, right? And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, or 2 Corinthians is a, is a defense of Paul's apostolic ministry. That's, that's its overriding theme. But there's another theme that runs through this book, and that is that Paul wants money from them. They have promised a collection for the relief of the famine of the church in Jerusalem. And the Corinthian assembly is rich. Okay. But they are incredibly greedy as well. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them here in chapters 8 and 9 to make sure that they deliver on their commitment. That when he comes to take an offering, that he gets more than, you know, a few shekels. And so notice what he does. Verse 8, or chapter 1, try it the other way. Chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's northern Greece. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. What is he doing? He is stimulating the church at Corinth to love and good deeds by pointing to the example of other Christians. And he's saying, this is what you should be modeling after. Several times the Apostle Paul says, right, follow me as I follow Christ. So one way that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds is to point to the example of other Christians who are doing it well. Another way we can stimulate uh, the brethren to love and good deeds, uh, Paul gives us a hint at it in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, where he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all men. There are kind of three 
activities going on there. One is admonishment. Admonishment. That, mean, that means to uh, bring corrective instruction to those who are unruly in the church. That can be privately, one-on-one, just kind of saddling up and saying, you know, brother, I've noticed that uh, you got a real problem with your temper. You know, when, when, you're, when somebody says something that you don't like, man, you go off like a Roman candle. And just talk to him about the problem with his temper. Or, or maybe it's something else you see in his life. Now, I'm not talking about going around, right, and nitpicking one another. Jesus says, right, get the log out of your own eye before you see clearly take the speck out of your brothers. But we are still to work with our brothers. It's not a, Jesus is not saying that you, uh, that you uh, ignore your brothers around you. You are supposed to help them get the speck out of their eye. You just got to make sure you get this big plank out of yours first. Okay? So there is a sense in which we admonish. That can be done publicly through the process of church discipline, but it is more effective and I think more appropriately done one-on-one instead of letting it escalate. So it's admonishment. It's also encouragement, he says. Encourage the faint-hearted, literally the little-souled people. Peoples of little souls, S-O-U-L. Okay, not shoe size here. Okay, little-souled people. They need to be encouraged. And that can be done through phone calls. That can be done through a note, maybe a hug, maybe a kind word. These are just ways to help stimulate love and good deeds among the body. And then patience, he says. Just patience is a way to stimulate others to love and good deeds. Just be patient with them. Let them observe your patience. Let me give you two others quickly, and then we've got to finish this up. But another was when it was, is involve them in small group activities within the church. Give them a personal invitation. You know, we can stand up here and make the big, broad, public invitation. You know, there's going to be a worldview class in, spring, uh, in FIT in the spring. Okay, that's my public invitation. You know what you could do, though, is you could go up to somebody and you could say, hey, you know what, I was really thinking about taking that class. What about if you take it with me? We'll take it together. You know, I'm not much of a student. You know, I'm a little nervous about taking it, but how about you and I take it together? That would be a way to stimulate and encourage within the body. Finally, four, take them with you when you're out doing ministry. I think here of, uh, of Barnabas and Paul taking John Mark with them. Just that pattern of taking someone along with you when you're out doing ministry is a way to encourage and stimulate them to do ministry as well. So those are some practical illustrations of this. So that gets us to verses 32 through 39 and the third life-changing attitude that the author tells us here that we need to adopt, we must adopt. And that is patient suffering. I mean, each of these sections could be a sermon on its own, couldn't it? Listen to what he says here in suffering. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised." For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Basically, what he's saying to them is remember how you used to suffer for Christ, both personally for your own commitment to Christ and vicariously in a sense that you were identifying with those who were suffering and sometimes suffering came to you because of your relationship to them. I mean, think of it this way. If you had a, you had a friend or a relative who was thrown in jail for being a Christian, would you visit him? Would you visit him? For to visit him would be to identify with him. And could bring the same level of suffering and persecution upon you. And so he's saying to them that there was at one time in your life when you thought it was worth it. You used to think it was worth it. You were willing to give up the things of this world 
to have the things of the world to come? What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? I got shorted this morning, didn't I? So, okay, we're all right here. I'm not going to stop yet. I'll tell you a story. The story is told about the great English reformer, Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, according to the story here, he preached a sermon before King Henry VIII. And the sermon offended the king because of its boldness. So Latimer was commanded to preach the following weekend and make public his apology to the king. So on the following Sunday, after reading the text, Latimer addressed himself as he began to speak. He, he talked to himself as he began to speak. And so listen to what he said. Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom this day you are to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh. Do you not know from where you have come and upon whose message you have been sent? Even by the great and mighty God, who is all present and who beholds all your ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. According to the story, Latimer then gave Henry VIII the same sermon that he had preached the week before, only this time with greater intensity. I don't know for a fact that that's true, but it certainly illustrates the point, doesn't it? What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? This life, beloved, is like jello. The tighter you grip it, the more squeezes through your fingers. You'll open your hand at the end of time and there'll be nothing there. Suffering was worth it. Remember, he says, your first love and hang on. That's verses 35 through 39. That's what he's saying to them. Remember your first love and hang on. Don't abandon the confident faith that expressed itself so admirably in the past. Right? Verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence, which has such great reward. I mean, to throw it all away now and to go back to Judaism would be to give it all up. You'd lose it all. Don't do that. Patiently suffer, if need be. If that's what God has called you to, then patiently suffer. Stay under it until He's done with you. Don't give in to the temptation to despair, to worry, to, to be discouraged. The pressure that you may have in your life. Hang on, it's worth it. It's worth it. And then he gives them a little vote of confidence here at the end, verse 39. He says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. He said, I, I think we're not like that. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. We're going to make it. See how he includes himself? We're going to make it. We are those who have faith to the preserving of our soul. He transitions, of course, there were no chapters in those times, but he transitions right into what we know as chapter 11, right? Which is the hall of faith. All those that have gone before, who by faith have reached out for the promises of God, never having seen them, only apprehending them by faith. Hang on. Suffer if you must. It's worth it in the end. Let's pray. Well, our Father God, we've covered a lot of material. In one sense, uh, this is sort of a summary of many, many months that have gone on before. 30, 30 sermons, I think, something like that. Where the theme has been pretty much consistent where under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, the writer to the Hebrews has examined like a great diamond the finished work of Jesus Christ from a multitude of angles, 
pointing always back to Him and and the reality that it is in Christ that we are made right before our God and that all the other things are of no avail. Our Father, we are not in danger of slipping back to Judaism, certainly. But there is a clear and present danger in all of our lives that the things of the world can creep in and can cloud our vision, can weaken our nerve, can cause us to flinch and pull back. Father, we pray for your spirit to strengthen our faith, that we would cling closely and tightly to Jesus Christ. And Lord God, if suffering is our lot, grant us martyr's grace to suffer patiently. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ron, I really like that.